Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hello out there, rock and rollers, and welcome to another episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off Abbey Road. And today, we offer you episode number 24 on Aerosmith and their early days their heyday in the 70s, all about a box set called Pandora's Box, which came out in 1991. First, I want to give you a little background here. I know we were away for a week and some of you were worried about what might have happened. We kind of went dark on Twitter a bit and didn't offer up a new episode for you as we have successfully for each week for the last 23 weeks. Well, don't want to get into the details too hard, but the fact of the matter was there was a ring of the doorbell, an overexcited golden retriever, a very full cup of water, and a laptop. And I'll leave it at that. But the fact of the matter is, we got the laptop back. The folks at Apple Store on Regent Street in central London were fantastic. They're easy to work with. They took protocols to make sure everybody was safe. But the good news is, we got it back. We're back on the air. Uh, and we're ready to go. And this is actually our third take at this show. Action Jackson and I didn't want to take a week off. Say, okay, we're our computer down, but let's go ahead and record it. Get it out for those who want to listen to it. So we tried it with my old laptop and with the iPad. And none of them had quite the right sound uh, as my MacBook Air here. So we're back in business talking about the rock and roll that we love. Talking about some shared experience that we have with some of this music and just having some conversations that we've loved having over the years, some that we've missed out on and some that we're having now. Now, when it comes to Aerosmith, honestly, I don't know that you can name a bigger American band, rock and roll band. Yeah, the Eagles may have outsold them, but they didn't really become a rock band until their fourth or fifth album. Whereas Aerosmith just has that great, dirty, blues-based two-guitar attack that makes rock and roll so much fun. Not to mention the crazy dynamic lead singer of Steven Tyler. Now, by 1991, Aerosmith was back in a big way, thanks to the Walk This Way single with Run DMC and Rick Rubin in the mid to late 80s. Aerosmith was back on the charts, and they came back with two huge albums in this time period, Permanent Vacation and Pump. 
And so they were big back on MTV, doing big tours, back to being the cultural icons that they were. But of course, in the 70s, they were as big a band as you could possibly be and released amazing albums in the 70s like Get Your Wings, like Toys in the Attic, Rocks, and Draw the Line. And in the late 80s to early 90s, thanks to CDs becoming more prevalent in the American zeitgeist, box sets were coming out, a chance for you to collect all the great songs of one band on just a few records, maybe three or four. And it, right before Christmas in 1991, Aerosmith put out Pandora's Box, which was everything, not everything, but a big swath of what they put out pre-comeback on permanent vacation. They were signed to Columbia in the 70s and early 80s. And then once they signed with Geffen in the 80s, that's who helped them become huge again. Well, Columbia wanted to get in on the Aerosmith craze. Like, we've got all their original songs. We've got all their big hits from the 70s. Why don't we put together a cool box set and get folks interested in the back catalog again? And so this box was a three-disc set that covered everything they did in the 70s and the early 80s when they broke up for a little while. Joe Perry went solo, Brad Whitford went off and did his own thing. They got some replacement guitarists in Aerosmith. So it has all the big hits like Dream On, Walk This Way, Sweet Emotion, but it's also got a lot of deep tracks, stuff from the albums, unreleased stuff, unreleased live stuff that we'd never heard before. And it was a beautiful package. Jackson and I listened to it back and forth throughout uh, 1992 and 1993 and really gave us a deeper appreciation for this juggernaut that was Aerosmith, huge in American culture in the 70s, and then went away, basically was in the Who Are They Now file in the early to mid-80s, until Rick Rubin, Run DMC, and Walk This Way brought them back, and then they had huge success on their own. Now, as usual, you can check out all our past episodes at www. UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And also follow us on Twitter. That's at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. So sorry about taking that little break, but we're back and we're better than ever here with Aerosmith's box set, Pandora's Box on the Wolf. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
Good to be back with you here, Jackson, after taking a little time off due to technical difficulties. I thought we were calling it spring break. Well, whatever you want to call it, we didn't put out a show for a week there. I'm sure everyone's dying to hear what we have to talk about. And, you know, it was it was fun to go back and, and do the research on, on this project. When Pandora's Box came out in 1991, and then we listened to it kind of constantly in 1992 and 1993, you know, we, we didn't have all this information at our fingertips on the internet. You couldn't just go out and see all this stuff you know you you had to kind of learn it firsthand you know from seeing the band in in interviews or or whatever they didn't have all this stuff back then so uh, i'm just glad that now we're to a point where we have access to all this information well and the cool part about the box set in general be it aerosmith or anything else back in 1989 1990 1991 it gave you that really cool book of information, photos that you could not really get anywhere else unless you were some kind of crazy super fan. So it really was a great kind of introduction to whoever you were trying to listen to. And at this point in time, we really only heard, or I really only heard, Permanent Vacation and Pump. And so, I mean, a little bit, you know, sprinkles on classic rock radio, but this was right. really the this was really the the mother load of cool stuff. And they had just signed with Geffen Records. So that was, well, not just, I think, was Done With Mirrors? Done With Geffen? Mirrors was, okay. was on Geffen, yeah. So they'd done three records with Geffen, but this was the, this was the, the from the vault, from mm-hmm. the Columbia days. And really, Aerosmith is the tale of two bands. I mean, the Geffen stuff is more straight ahead rock radio, top not top 40, but well, actually, no, Angel was a number one hit. I mean, that was the number one hit on the on the top 40 charts. So this was the stuff. This was like this was Aerosmith's like nasty, dirtier cousin. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Charts. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and, and coming out of the 70s, I mean, this was like the dirty, bluesy, two guitar, American rock and roll attack, if you will. And uh, yeah, I mean, to set the stage for maybe those who weren't there back in the day in the late 80s I mean CDs came out in the early 80s I think but it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that anybody really had them you know I mean nobody had a CD player in 1986 that I'm aware of but by 1988 kind of everybody had them uh, and this new longer and stronger I would even say format allows you to put more on it. So suddenly, if you were going to do a career retrospective that really included all sorts of stuff like an Eric Clapton's Crossroads that includes stuff from all of his bands over the years, you could do it now. In four discs, you could put together five hours worth of music, you know. Uh, plus, they could get a lot of money out of you. Compact disc cost 15 bucks a pop back then, and 15 bucks in 1989-1991 money is like 40 bucks today. So you could sell three CDs for $45. You know, that's over $100 in today's money, whereas three CDs today might cost you $20 at the most, right? But you're right in that they had a beautiful liner notes, tales from all the different songs, stories from all the different guys, and even the discs themselves were pretty. I mean, they, they designed them well, they had cool artwork, and they were a little different each one. It wasn't just every single one with a number one, two, or three on it. They had, uh, you know, different designs to kind of show the progression of the band. And yes, 
you know, I think CBS Columbia wanted to capitalize on the fact that this band that kind of petered out for them at the beginning of the 80s was now back on top, thanks to Geffen and thanks in large part to Run DMC and Rick Rubin doing the big hit single Walk This Way, which I think was in 1986. It was big for Run DMC, but it was huge for Aerosmith because it really put them back on top. It kind of took them from the where are they now files back to the forefront onto MTV and not selling half a million or a million copies. But Permanent Vacation and Pump sold like 14 million copies in the U.S. alone, more than 20 million around the world. That's being back in the big time. Correct. And we may have talked about this before, but the the run the Walk This Way Run DMC mm-hmm. was way bigger for Aerosmith. Run DMC were going to be big no matter what. But it was everybody else who said, hey, wait a minute, Aerosmith, I, I remember them. But they were around seven. And then after that, they put out Permanent Vacation because Done With Mirrors uh, fell kind of flat. I think it fell real flat. It did. The, yeah, in the sales, I don't even remember a single off of that. So I think it was like, hey, we're back. No, you're not back. So they were in some trouble. So yeah, that relaunched them. And then they they just exploded. But the other thing I was thinking about too, you were talking about the discs themselves. Mm-hmm. If you remember back then, they had, because CDs were so expensive, the older back catalog stuff, especially somebody like Aerosmith, they were not, the, the packaging was, you maybe got the cover and maybe the back, but the inside was white. The mm-hmm. disc was silver with writing on it. These were really cool to look at, and the packaging was great. And it was really more like, hey, you know, we were excited about this, not like, well, yeah, if you want to listen to it, here it is. But you just get the tracks. No, yeah, to, to your point, you know, sometimes in the 80s, when all of a sudden, okay, now we've got to put everything out on CD and maybe remaster it for CD. Not all of them were high quality. Some were just like, okay, well, we just got to get this stuff out there uh, and then mark it up to $15 so we can make a ton of money. But to your point on Run DMC, yeah, when Run DMC put out Walk This Way with Rick Rubin, and Rick Rubin was smart enough to get Joe Perry and Steven Tyler to come down to the studio, I think Joe laid down some new guitar work on it so it wasn't just sampling from the Toys in the Attic original. They really kind of created a new song. But Run DMC was huge, you know. Run DMC was enormous, and UB Illin was going to be off that album uh, and it's tricky it was off that huge huge success for MTV big crossover into white America and Reverend Run said in an interview at the time he wasn't sure what Rick was talking about because Walk This Way was not a hit in his house you know in the 70s because they had more hip-hop and R&B and maybe a little gospel on Sundays they didn't really know Walk This Way by Aerosmith. So it was opening Aerosmith into a more urban culture. But like you said, I I think it, it, yes, it was huge for Run DMC at the time, but it was bigger for Aerosmith. Because if you look at album sales going forward, maybe a year after Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith comes out, Aerosmith was the big beneficiary of that collaboration. Correct. And they kind of just rolled from that track into Permanent Vacation, the launch of that. So they were already, they still had some heat from Walk this way and then you know they had the they had two i think it was dude looks like a lady and angel with the two big tracks off of that but when when that was hot it was all over the place and then of course to your point then people all of a sudden wake up and say hey aerosmith yeah i remember them didn't they have some let me go back and look at this and then this thing comes out mm-hmm. and the the problem or the the trick with the box set is how do i make you buy three discs well, mm-hmm. it can't be greatest hits because that's 
you know, you're not going to have that much material. And then if it's all just real obscure stuff, the casual fan's not going to buy it. I don't, I don't even know these songs. I don't, you know, it's, it's something that was recorded in Joe Perry's basement and okay, right. well, whatever. So you really have to marry the two worlds. And I know in doing uh, research for this show, people were complaining, well, it doesn't have enough uh, obscure stuff. It tries to appeal to everybody. Yes, it does try to appeal to everybody. They need to sell copies. But I think this was a really cool introduction and it, in some places deep dive into the, the original Aerosmith catalog. I totally agree. You know, and yeah, we knew stuff like Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion and maybe the few other songs like Back in the Saddle that they would play on classic rock radio, but we didn't have any of those records. Look, when uh, they did the record Rock in a Hard Place, which was the only one they did without Joe Perry and Brad Whitford on guitars, you know, we were like eight years old and MTV. TV had taken over and, you know, and Aerosmith wasn't on it, right? Because it wasn't the same anymore. They weren't getting the same love from the record company anymore. They weren't as big as stars anymore. They, they kind of didn't exist. They were a, a classic act in our minds, in our lives at that point. Didn't really know much about them. Uh, and, you know, CBS kind of gave up on them. Like, okay, the band's broken up. They had too much excess. They don't have the original members anymore. They're not selling big records. We're going to drop them. And then Aerosmith famously got clean. You know, they all kind of got cleaned up and they went to Geffen and, and got a new deal and they got a big boost from John Kalodner, who's a world-class A&R guy. And if anybody remembers Aerosmith videos from like the late 80s and the early 90s, if you ever saw this long-haired, bearded weirdo, sometimes in a wedding dress, uh, either at the beginning or the end of one of their videos, that's him. That, that's John Kalodner. He's kind of a star maker and could get stuff on the radio and could pick out the hits. And if you see the making of Pump, which is a video that they put out, you can get it on DVD or see it on the internet, where it's basically behind the recording of Pump, Pump following up Permanent Vacation, and had, what, four or five big hits off of it and big videos. Uh, and you can see Steven, who is a world-class superstar, rock star, sex symbol, whatever you want to call him. And he's totally, like, trying to get the attention of John. Like, hey, John, do you hear three signals? What about four? You think there's four? I definitely think there's three. Which ones do you like? You know? And I'm like, wow, did, does he really have to kind of kowtow to this little weirdo? But that little weirdo held a lot of power, did a lot of things for Geffen Records, uh, in the 80s uh, and into the 90s and really helped Aerosmith get back on top of the world. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if he introduced them to Desmond Child, mm -hmm. but that was a big deal. So I think they it, this was just more of a move toward a bigger production, more professional people writing these songs, and, and just a, a move to make this just a bigger deal on rock radio. And yeah, that, that could be the fact that they just, and they, they, you know, they had known Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin was on fire at that point in time. Everything that he touched was giant. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you talk about like really the tale of two bands. I mean, you're talking about the last uh, record they had made with, uh, without Joe Perry, and Brad Whitford and Jimmy Crespo came in. They were done. I mean, mm -hmm. they were over. That was it. End of story. Oh, okay, here we go. The band breaks up. They put out a record that's subpar. Oh, uh, well, and they're all on drugs. End of story. Nope. They rise out of like a phoenix rising from Arizona per uh, Frank Costanza. <laughs> Yeah, it, it really, it really is. It's amazing that they came back. It's amazing they're still together today. I know they've had some problems with, uh, you know, the lineup recently. Uh, Joey Kramer, I think, I don't know what's going on with him. But the fact that they could get back together and play 
and you want to talk about a band that's just absolutely rock solid tight oh man they've been playing together for so long it's it's crazy they can just you know they've got like you can just look at somebody oh, okay well now i'm gonna do this okay well then then i'll do this over here and so yeah i mean they're they're still amazing to see live the newer stuff is really not our cup of tea right but this this stuff is the columbia years were definitely what made them and honestly is there a band in the united states that that could be our rolling stones i think it's aerosmith it's got to be Aerosmith. I mean, I'm sure the Eagles outsell them uh, as mm-hmm. far as number of records sold. But the Eagles were a country alt band until Don Felder joined by their fourth album. And then you could maybe argue that Hotel California is when they really became a real rock band. That's five albums in, you know, whereas Aerosmith has always been blues based. And they just are five great musicians who found each other in greater Boston. You know, they scouted each other out. They learned some things on their own. Then they got together and learned together and worked their way up, you know, and then through the 70s, 73 to 77, they put out their first five albums, classics, amazing stuff on there. Excess kind of took over. So by the late 70s, early 80s, they'd fallen out of favor a little bit. They didn't have their same lineup together anymore. Uh, They got dropped by CBS. But then once they were back on top of the world, CBS decided, hey, yeah, wait a minute. We've got this great back catalog. And they were hits. And they sold really well. So they put together this Pandora's box. And look, out of 50-plus tracks, more than 20 of them were previously unreleased. Now, some of them are songs you know from their heyday. It's just their live versions that had never been released before. Some of them are things in the studio that maybe weren't quite all finished songs. You know, stuff that maybe they got part of the way done on but didn't quite finish. Uh, and, and, you know, and then some are, are unreleased tracks that are great that, that we'll talk about. We'll kind of, we won't go track by track, but we'll kind of run through each disc and, and how we feel about it there. Yeah, it, for the kid who started to really seriously get into music in 1986, 1987, we missed out on Aerosmith in their heyday. But then we got them in the second wave, and then we wanted to better understand why there was a second wave in the first place, and that's because of the 70s, Aerosmith was about the biggest band in the world by the end of the 70s. Yes, and this is a nice a nice dive into it. And the thing that I kind of like, too, about the beginning of this thing, I mean, but they do include stuff that's, all, that's not Aerosmith. Like, for instance, the first track, when I Needed You by uh, Steven Tyler's band Chain Reaction, mm-hmm. which it just shows you where they started from. I mean, they wanted to sound like the British Invasion, and then you move into, you kind of find your you find your own way in the world. You find your, you know, the guys that you want to be in the band with. Obviously, I mean, I've looked at the Chain Reaction lineup, don't know anybody there, so obviously... Tyler said, okay, I want to be a star. These aren't the guys. Let me find the people who are. Meets the guys from Aerosmith, puts that together, and they're off and running. That's right. And no, we don't need to go through track by track, but we can mention the tracks that we like and kind of got to be a feel for the album. It's kind of done in chronological order from their first album, Aerosmith, down through Rock in a Hard Place. Uh, which is what they released in the early 80s, which kind of led to the the dissolution of the band, but then the possibility for their rebirth, uh, which has been incredible. And yeah, When I Needed You is Great doesn't sound anything like Aerosmith. came out maybe seven or eight years before the first Aerosmith record did, but you can kind of see his roots there. And then, you know, in the first two, three, four songs after that, which are, are basically from the first album, you can really see that dirty blues, you know, where they came from coming out there. And then on One Way Street, the fourth song, you can hear Stephen playing that harmonica, which he does in later albums in the 90s and stuff, but he, he really, you don't appreciate how good of a harp player he really was. Correct. 
Yeah, just just a mo- and and uh, it's fun to watch him play the drums too. I know he famously was a drummer as a as a younger person, and obviously not the drummer in the band. But yeah, it, it's cool to see somebody do something that you're like, oh, he can do that also. That's pretty cool. And yeah, the, and again, going back to the Stones, uh, Mick Jagger's a great harmonica player. Steven Tyler's a great. So the the similarities really, if you I think if you look at it, you're like, yeah, these guys. Unfortunately, they they had that kind of gap uh, where they were where they were out of commission but definitely had the, the stones vibe and if they had keep, kept themselves together who knows how big they could have been straight through well that's that's right yeah and you know the excesses of the 70s caught up with them and we can get into some of that you know but i mean steven's father i think is a very accomplished musician studied at juilliard something like that if i'm not mistaken um and G- steven can play the piano very well you know obviously he can sing so bring all your talents to the table, you know. know, The sixth song, Mama Kin, is a fantastic rock and roll song, classic Aerosmith song. You know, there's a sax guy on there, David Woodward, who played with them, I guess, in their early days, so you can hear some of that on there. And Stephen tattooed it on his arm, you know, Mama Kin on his arm, because he told the boys, this is the song that's going to make us famous. Now, he wasn't necessarily right about that, but it's still a fantastic classic rock and roll song, and I know that you love the Guns N' Roses version. And I think that was was my first introduction. It was like, yeah, this song, this song rules, and then it, and then it was, wait a minute, Aerosmith cover. Hold on, hold on a minute. So then, yeah, you get into that, and you say, well, that's I love Axl Rose, and I love his voice, but I mean, the original is stands up to the test of time on that because it, Tyler's just killing it on this one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a kind of a famous line in it. You know, sleeping late and smoking tea, which is about you know sleeping late and smoking pot. Um, <laughs> but I guess the original line was sleeping late in sun of pee. Uh, being son of P. New Hampshire, where I guess Stephen grew up, and he may have written Dream On there, you know, four or five years before they ever laid it down on record. I guess some of the other members of the band had, had been around there. Maybe they had uh, had had a place there uh, when they were out gigging, you know, back in the late 60s or early 70s. So that's kind of a, a nice little uh, tidbit there, I guess, uh, that we learned here thanks to the internet here lately. But yeah, you, you get a few, you get stuff from the albums, but you also get deep tracks that maybe they recorded during that session and those never made it on the album for one reason or another. Like the fifth song, On the Road Again, by John Sebastian. I think he was in love with Spoonful. You know, they never put that on album, but we get it here, you know, which is cool. You know, it's nice, you know. And then after Mama Kin, they get into some of the songs from from Get Your Wings, like Same Old Song and Dance. And of course, my very, very, very favorite, Train Kept A-Rollin', which is, the Yardbirds kind of made it famous, but this is the best version and I've I've heard the Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page version. I've heard Jimmy Page by himself. This is the best version of Train Kepper Rolling on the planet in my opinion. Yeah, and it's one of those ones that like you said, we had never heard before and it it's just, you know, you put it on and it's just brutal. I mean Joe Perry is you think, oh, you know, oh great American guitars and Joe Perry No, I mean he's really really good on this and just just hammering this and it big kind of makes you it makes you wonder why was that not a bigger track how come people haven't i mean how come i don't know this like i know the the stones catalog i don't know what the answer is i don't know why they weren't promoted more i mean i know they had that one greatest hits record with the red cover where mm-hmm. the the logo was a little off the skew and that was a big seller but it yeah just, went diamond kind of, in america man yeah like 11 million copies <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, they were they were a popular band. I just don't know why that the rest of this catalog was not embraced like the Stones. I don't know, but yeah, that's fantastic. And then the, the next song, "Seasons of Wither," mm-hmm. that's one I'd never heard before either. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. 
cool. And then if you were listening to that in the early 90s, you, you say, hey, wait a minute. That's Say Hello to Heaven from the Temple of the Dog record. Like they borrowed very heavily from that song yeah. structure. You can tell they were influenced by that song. And that's that's not a really a, that's not a hardcore song, but it's pretty cool. It's a departure. It just shows you how they can write other things besides straight ahead blues songs. Yeah, it's cool too because the, those two songs bleed into each other, which is something that happens on albums quite a bit. You, you kind of finish up the last song and then that kind of blends into what the next song is. And that's the way it was on Get Your Wings. What I didn't know is because it always sounded live, I didn't even really know it was off Get Your Wings. I thought maybe it was on Classics Live or Live Bootleg or something like that. They pumped audience noise in there because I guess someone they'd worked with had noticed how George Harrison on the concert for Bangladesh had pumped some audience noise in there to make it sound more live on the record. They did that for Train Keparola. And so that's that's interesting to me. But skip down, and then number 11 is Dream On, obviously a rock and roll anthem, huge, huge rock and roll anthem for Aerosmith, and released twice in the 70s. It released when the first album came out, and did okay, I think, in Boston, didn't do much nationally. But then once... Toys in the Attic hit really big. They said, let's go ahead and re-release Dream On. And it became a hit later in life for the band, uh, which is cool. Um, and then, of course, it helped promote sales of their first album again. And you could get a sticker on there said, you know, featuring Dream On, which, you know, the original release didn't have. So that's, that's kind of an interesting story. But you know that Dream On is something that he wrote a long time ago on a piano by himself, dreaming of becoming a rock star. And now, you know, he gets to sing it every night all over the world. Uh, there was a. I read an uh, interview with Joe Perry, and he was talking about the first record, the um, cover of it, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like this weird. It's just a photo, and he's like, "Yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. They just used this photo." He said, "We learned a lot about dealing with record companies when they just kind of threw this thing together, and we saw the finished product. I mean, back then, stuff was printed, so you know, you'd printed fifty thousand copies of it or something, and well, it's too late to do anything now. And I guess we're living with it, but you, we need, <laughs> we need to have a little more creative control." moving forward. You gotta have Dream On, right? I mean, you gotta have it in this box set. And for people like, well, it's gotta have a bunch of rarities, but it's also gotta have Best of, best of and stuff like that. Can't get any more Best Of than that song. Uh, and they put the, the song Pandora's Box in there. And they wrap up with three live ones that were previously unreleased. Rattlesnake Shake was a Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac fame song. They stretched out for about ten and a half minutes because, you know, when you only have two albums, even if you play everything on both albums, you know, that's that's an hour and 20 minutes maybe. You know, you, you got to fill some time. So sometimes you need some old standards, some blues that you can kind of stretch out a little bit here. And this was on... Cincinnati's K-Rock from a live radio broadcast, which they sell now all the time. You know, I remember when we were in college, sometimes we would record uh, a live concert on a cassette, you know, via the radio or something like that. Um, and, and you would hear that radio stations got to do that. But now it's kind of become a cottage industry that if you had a radio broadcast in the 70s or 80s, you can probably get the CD on Amazon of that radio broadcast and relatively inexpensive. And the other cool part about this too is that it really kind of shows you that this band was made to play live. I mean, they, they write songs and put out albums, but they do that to play live. So it is cool to, to hear them. I, I don't want to say impromptu because, I mean, it's not like they showed up at the radio station, but to kind of put something together and play live, it, that was a really cool treat for people in Cincinnati or wherever you were because that was the days before nationally syndicated radio so you kind of had this little cool, oh, I listen to, you know, K-Rock out of Cincinnati and they have cool stuff on there. 
Yeah. And then you go into, uh, you know, Lord of the Thighs from the Texas Jam, which uh, if you have never heard my grand plans for the future, I am putting together a time machine. And when I get it finished, we will go to the Texas Jam on July 4th, 1978, because that looks like an incredible show. Yeah, it looks amazing. Texas Jam is something they did in Dallas and Houston for about 11 years. And I think Van Halen came and played it three or four times, headlined it a couple times. ZZ Top was there with Aerosmith in the 78 some big rock bands and it was you know they do it at the Cotton Bowl or the Astrodome or something like that and it's it's kind of taken on a little bit of legend there and eventually in the 80s Aerosmith did release a VHS of the Texas Jam um, but they uh, left a couple of songs off there specifically I Want to Know Why and Big 10 Inch Record but you got those those are tracks 8 and 9 on disc 2 here um, so much like when Rush had to put out Exit Stage Left it was originally a double album then when it comes to CDs, there's not quite enough room for the two LPs, so they had to cut off A Passage to Bangkok. But when they made Chronicle, the two-disc retrospective, uh, they put it on there to give a chance for those who only had CDs to go ahead and, and not only complete the original, um, but to be able to hear it, you know. And so it's cool that they not only put, uh, you know, one of their big ones off Texas Jam, but they included the ones that people couldn't get anywhere else. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's weird too, going back to Rush, you think if they were going to cut a track, why would it be that one? But I mean, it's just the time or, you know, the disc is a finite amount of space. You can only put so much stuff on it. So it is cool, yeah, to get the stuff back in there. And that's exactly what this box set setup is for, to put stuff on there that you hadn't seen before, giving you the the treats mm -hmm. um, for your 54 or $65 that you were spending on this deal. Yeah, it gets stuff like they do a song for a soundtrack. A lot of people don't buy soundtracks. You certainly don't buy them for one song just because one artist has one song on there. So put soundtrack songs there. Put B-sides on there. Put stuff that, you know, just is unreleased because it didn't make it on a certain album, but it's still a good song. All right, well, that wraps up disc one. Disc two gets into Toys in the Attic, and this is really... The power Aerosmith uh, yeah. time, as far as I'm concerned. Toys in the Attic, Rocks, Draw the Line, 75, 76, 77 into 78. This is when they were firing on all cylinders. Huge, huge band. I think Toys in the Attic sold 8 million in the U.S. alone and, and more than 10 million around the world. Of course, you've got Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion both on there. It's it's huge. And Sweet Emotion was the, was the track that they re-released for the kickoff of this deal, and they did a video for it, and I mean, it, you heard the song before, and it, it just kind of it kicked it back in. And then they used it on the uh, Days and Confused soundtrack as the intro. That really cool. I mean, yeah, you know, the, you're just waiting for the song to kick in because that bass line is so cool. The bass line's fantastic, you know. And like the album Toys in the Attic is awesome. And I actually never bought it after this because there's nine tracks on Toys in the Attic, and eight of the songs are on here. Now a couple of them are live outtakes, like Adam's Apples live. Uh, Uncle Salty's the only song from the record that isn't represented here on this box set, and it was the B-side to Walk This Way back in the day, so obviously that's not their favorite song uh, off the album. But you got Toys in the Attic, Round and Round, You See Me Crying, again, kind of a slow, sweet song, almost a ballad, you know, a little piano action there for Steven. No More, No More, Walk This Way, Adam's Apple, I mean, these are, you know, classic classic songs this is the one we really listened to because it goes toys in the attic round and round it, there was a jam called Craw, craw Whitham, which was from kramer whitford and tom hamilton doing a jam 
that had no vocals on it. Then You See Me Crying, Sweet Emotion, No More, No More, which I love. I love No More, No More. I think it's a, yeah. a killer swinging Aerosmith song, you know? Yeah, and then you get into one of my favorites. Uh, you were talking about the Texas Jam stuff, but Rats in the Cellar. Mm-hmm. Again, you start listening to that and you think, well, why have I never heard this song before? This is fantastic. Just And, and, and then to, to see them play it live at some point, what was it? You got to move live. Mm-hmm. It's almost nine minutes long because they just get in there and just rip it up. That's a great song. And I think that the problem, not the problem, but Toys in the Attic is the big one. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you go into Rocks, but I think that it's it's not it's not as big as Toys in the Attic, but Rocks is a fantastic album also. Yeah, look, Rocks, I think, is the one that most of the real rockers, like the Metallicas and the Motley Crues, will say that's their best record. Maybe it didn't sell as big as Toys in the Attic, uh, didn't have as big a hits. It still sold well. It was like four or five million copies sold in America and more around the world. And you start off with Back in the Saddle. That's not till disc three, but Back in the Saddle is a killer album. And yeah, Last Child, Rats in the Cellar. Some of these songs are, are pretty heavy, if you will. It's it's one of the ones that f- the true hardcore fans consider this maybe one of their best. It's hard for me to say it's better than Toys in the Attic just because I love just about every song on there. And there's a few on rocks that I don't absolutely love. But it, it is going to get a little bit of hardness to it. There's a little, there's nobody's fault. It's kind of got a heavy metal riff to it, you know? Yeah, and I think that, it's like you said, this is really where they came into their own. This is where they became the powerhouse band. But I think the, the this is where the problems start to come in because you just start, you're, you're always working. You're either making the record, you're on tour, you're back in the studio again, you're back on tour, you're home for like, you know, a week and a half. So I think the problem is that, you know, you start making money, you start becoming famous, but you don't really get to enjoy it because the record companies are working you to death. I think that it, for as big as Aerosmith was, and I think it's for as big as any of these bands were in this mid to late 70s, Mm-hmm. You really didn't have a whole lot of control over what you were doing. The record company was just beating you over the head with more, more, more. And, you know, you sell 4 million tri- copies of record A. Well, record B better be, you know, 7, 8, 10 million copies. More, 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 more. And you, as soon as you fall off a little bit, I don't know. And, and this, so, is, this is the era of super albums, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Fleetwood Mac puts out rumors it sells 25 million records. Okay, well, they followed out with Tusk, and it only, quote-unquote, sells 6 million double albums. Oh, well, then that's a failure. What are you talking Correct. about? That's like 12 yeah. million records, you know? The, the Eagles put out Hotel California. It sells 25 million copies. The record company's like, when can we have the long run? When can we have it? When can we have it? When can we have it? You know, Peter Frampton comes out, Frampton comes alive. It sells 100 bazillion copies. But then it's hard for him to make another record because that's basically a greatest hits album. He had his whole life to c- c- accumulate all these songs over the years to the point where he could put out a double live album. And it's like, okay, the next one needs to come right out. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, I need a little time to breathe here, you know, and I can't put five hits on one, you know, one album. It took me all my life to get all these other hits, you know, so... Yeah, they just figured, well, just do it again. Because, you know, back in the day, Jackson, back in like the 50s and the early 60s, if you had one hit, great, go make another one that sounds just like it. Great, go make another one that sounds just like that. And that's your sound. Whereas, you know, an artist needs to grow. They need to try new things. And it's hard because you have to have to strike that balance between this has to sound like our previous stuff, but we also have to push the boundaries You make things that satisfy us as artists. And try something new, you know, see what's going on, look around what's happening around you, 
and see if you can compete there. So, and then you throw in the fact that you could put mountains of cocaine off the books and the budgets of, of records back then. So you just kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing and eventually there's going to be a break. And you know, that's an interesting point too, because I think it, like in the 50s and the 60s, there was a lot of commonality. Like there was a lot of people that recorded the same songs. Mm-hmm. And so it, when you were going to put out a record, there were people that wrote their own songs, don't get me wrong, but it, there was a, we, we're going to put something together and this is what you're going to do. This, in the 70s, it was, they were writing all their own music. So to your point, you know, I just put this record out that I just put my heart and soul into. Okay, well, where's the next one? Mm-hmm. Well, I got to write songs and put them together. I can't just pick five that somebody else wrote and throw this out on the street again. And yeah, again, if it's just, well, I'm not, I'm not feeling it today. Well, I've got something that'll make you feel it. No problem. Right. We'll just get you, we'll get you up and we'll get you out. I mean, what did, uh, what did Joe Walsh say? I have a mansion, forget the price. Yeah. I've never been there. They you know, they tell me it's nice. Yeah. They're just working these guys to death. And you know, they, you want to be, you want to be a star. You want to be rich. You want to be famous, but you don't want to be forgotten about. So you got to keep just, you, you can't, as soon as you take a break, oh, we'll take a year off. We'll take two years. Okay. Can't it's going to pass you by. That's right. And that gets us into draw the line. And basically Stevens would say, we didn't know where to draw the line. And there were a lot of lines around, right? Lines on that mirror, lines on your face. You yeah. know, yeah, it was tough, you know, and, and although the song Draw the Line, I love that heavy boom, 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 boom. That's yeah. classic. It sounds great live. It's also, again, don't want to start any controversies or any legal battles. But if you listen to Cheap Trick's song about, uh, which basically is the uh, theme song for that 70s song, you know, hanging out down oh, the street. Yeah. It's, it's basically Aerosmith's Draw the Line. What's interesting is my friend at Hunt and I paid way too much money to go backstage to get a tour. Uh, and to meet Steven Tyler. And I actually also met Rick Nielsen. He popped out of a trailer next to me and said hello, and I shook his hand. He's every bit of of a funny guy and a weirdo in real life as he is on TV. Um, (laughs) But they played that song live. I just figured that's something they did for the TV show. But Cheap Trick actually played that song live. And you know what? I'm happy that I got to see Cheap Trick because they're another band from that same era who never quit. They just kept going. Maybe the trends didn't follow them. They got a little bit of an up kick in the late 80s about the same time that Aerosmith did but but they're still going now and you can hear interviews about that they just put a record out you know they're still going man and, and God bless them for doing so yeah I did and I saw them if you're if you ever uh, are bored out there and want to see something that I think is really cool it's live from Daryl's house uh, mm-hmm. Daryl Hall and he had Robin Sander on uh, from Cheap Trick first thing in the morning and uh, he I can't remember what song they were going to do but it was one where he sings really high and, uh, you know, Daryl Hall's like, you okay? He's like, yeah, no problem. I can hit those high notes. So just a guy who, just a band that never lost it either. They could go out and rock it. Uh, I know the, the drummer, Bunny Carlos, is, has been out of it for a while, but the, the heart and soul is there. And yeah, the, the guys that went through some hard times too, I'm sure that they did not escape the partying 70s. But yeah, it is really cool that we still have these people around. I mean, again, the Aerosmith is not what they were back then, but to the fact that they're still here and the fact that they will still play these old songs is still pretty cool to me. It's great. And, and they're a tight band. Tom Hamilton's a great bass player. He made that incredible bass line to start Sweet Emotion. He and Jomi Kramer make a formidable team. 
Brad Whitford's one of those guys who probably doesn't get much credit just because Joe Perry's out front and he's flashy and he's one of the toxic twins and he's good looking and he can play the hell out of that guitar. But, you know, Brad is awesome in his own right, maybe overshadowed a little bit. Obviously, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler get a lot of the press and a lot of the credit. And you get to the end of the 70s and on to disc three here. And this is when it's really kind of starting to fall apart a little bit. And you start with Kings and Queens, which is a Aerosmith kind of a classic. And they pulled us off of Classics Live. But even that song to me shows the heaviness of trying to carry the load of this enormous band when everybody's screwed up and everybody's being told how awesome they are and how it's the other guys that are the problem. And the song, it's kind of slow, but then it has this odd bass thing in the middle, but sometimes it picks up. And it's a little, it's like you're trying to do too much in one song. And I feel like that was probably what was going on in the band at the time. Yeah. It, it, again, it's the, it's the more, 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 more. Okay. What are you going to do? How are you going to put this over the top? What are you going to do to make me more money? And yeah, it, you reach a point where it just, it just starts to splinter. Yeah. And it, it, like you said, are you trying to do too much? Are you trying, are you getting away too much from the original formula? Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, we, we were at that point at this time. And then, you know, I, like you said, I don't think Tom, I don't think uh, Brad Whitford gets enough credit. He, you, you have to have that in a band like this. You have to have a dude that's a, I don't want to say he's a utility player because that's almost demeaning, but he, he fits himself into the band so well. And mm-hmm. the same with Kramer and the same with Hamilton. Like you said, it's the toxic twins. They're the stars. Right. And you've got it. You've got it. Yes. And that's that's one of the coolest T-shirts. I mean, I know the I know you have the, the Nick and Keith of the Glimmer Twins, but I mean, the Toxic Twins are just so much cooler. That's so cool, man. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, it's so freaking cool. No doubt about it. But but then, yeah. OK, so now we're getting to the night in the ruts era, the, the last record they made in the 70s. And eventually Joe left, I think before this is 100% done. He's on the cover. He's credited with his writing credits on there. But, you know, it was falling apart at this point. And, you know, there's a couple of songs they have on here. Like they have I Live in Connecticut, which is an unreleased rehearsal of Three Mile Smile. And then they have Three Mile Smile. And then they have Let It Slide, which is an unreleased rehearsal of Cheesecake from Night in the Ruts. And then they have Cheesecake. So they're showing a little bit about the evolution of these songs. But on Let It Slide and Cheesecake, you kind of get reminded that Joe Perry's this killer slide guitar. He doesn't play it on every single song, but he can do some stuff with that slide that is really badass. Yeah, and, and like you said, I think that he he does not get the credit that he deserves. I think he, for as big of a rock star as he is, he's still kind of oddly understated. Like when you when you see interviews with him, he's just he's got that real cool Keith Richards, just like yeah, I mean. You know, he lets he lets the music do the talking. I know that's cliche, but yeah, the slide guitar, his backing vocals are very cool. One of the coolest uh, stage things they do is when he and Tyler get on the same mic. Mm. And actually, if you watch that, uh, you got to move live. They're they're in close, and Tyler's actually strumming the guitar for him. It's just cool. I mean, they've been doing this a million years. They're I know they're not related but mm-hmm. i mean they're brothers from another mother i mean they've been doing this for so long i know you're going to do this so i'm going to do this you know there's there's cool things of him playing and, and tyler kind of just leaning on his shoulder and these guys are just they're cool they're so cool you know and they got that kind of ego ramp or big catwalk out there that obviously steven occupies a lot but joe's not afraid to walk out there and mm-hmm. he'll go out there and jam his solo and kill it you know and then when it's come back time to do the chorus 
you know, he'll just kind of saunter over to Steve and, and, and put his head to the side there and, yeah, sing with him. And on stage, man, it's a moment. It still gives me goosebumps to see it, whether it's live or on TV. It's like, that is great rock and roll royalty doing it right, man. Yeah, and, and the fact that they are, I mean, they've got to be 60s now, pushing 70s. 70s. Yeah, they're in the 70s. Yeah, to still to still look like they can still get the job done. There's a lot of bands that you'll see you haven't seen them for a while, and like, oh, you know, here's whoever. Oh, okay, yeah, you have not, you haven't put the work in to uh, to remain rock star cool. They right. have done that. They have, but you know, the, the album's not that great, and they've got this, you know, this this song, Bone to Bone, Coney Island, White Fish Boy from Night in the Ruts. You know, it's kind of a bummer that I don't have all my records and the booklet uh, from this particular one to do this because they did have a walkthrough of every song on it. But this, from what I recall, it was a used condom that would wash up on the shore of Coney Island. So if like you went under the pier to get some action with your girl and then you toss, you know, you toss the rubber out in the sea, it would wash up later. That's a that's a Coney Island white fish boy right there. And that's that's something I didn't know as a kid growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, I, I had not heard that phrase either and to think about you know walking on the beach and seeing these things like i mean it can't just be one so apparently it was it was enough of a phenomenon so that uh, its own euphemism yeah that's kind of crazy that's right but, but midway through here see now we get to a soundtrack song come together the beatles hit which was on the sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band soundtrack a movie I think was produced by Robert Stigwood and then the album was produced by George Martin. And it's kind of, I mean, you talked about it when we tried to record this once before, kind of an odd situation all the way around. Yeah, just an interesting, I don't know how, what the genesis was, but, you know, I'm sure it was a party at Stigwood's house and there may have been some illegal substances there. He's would say something like, Let's, I think we should make a movie out of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, who could be in it, Robert? The Beatles are broken up. We can have the Bee Gees do it. But there are only three Bee Gees, Robert. We can get Frampton to be the fourth person. It makes no sense. It is insane. But it happened. And I kind of feel like everybody should at least check it out one time just to say, wow, yeah. I have experienced it. But but I think they do back to the back to the track. I think they do a great version of it. It sounds fantastic. It's it's really hard to somebody so iconic as the Beatles to mm -hmm. cover a Beatles song like what's wrong with you. But they do a good job of making it their own. Yeah, absolutely they do. You know, and although this may have appeared on a greatest hits album, uh it was never on an Aerosmith like first release albums this is a good place to put it and it wasn't it may be the first song by the Beatles that they released but it was not the first one they recorded we're going to get to that here in a minute but yeah I mean Night in the Ruts late 70 early 80 they they broke up Joe Perry left and then eventually Brad Whitford did too but what was cool was Joe Perry went out to do the the Joe Perry project Brad Whitford went out to do Whitford St. Holmes of course Derek St. Holmes being a bass player and singer most famous for for being with Ted Nugent and doing the, the vocals on Stranglehold. They both made records. And you get a little bit here. You get Sharpshooter from Whitford St. Holmes, which is, again, it's 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 kind of tough. It's kind of heavy. It gives Brad a real chance to shine. And then with uh, South Station Blues from I Got the Rock and Rolls again, Joe gets a chance to sing lead, which eventually he would a little bit. I do believe that Walk On Down was on Get a Grip, which came out in 1993. 
giving Correct. Joe a chance to, to sing. And we love that on Get a Grip. We would we would not skip over that one. We might listen to the hits, but we'd also skip towards that one because it's cool to hear Joe singing. Yeah, a little bit. Again, like I said before, it's cool to hear somebody do something that they're not known for. You know, Joe Perry does not have the greatest voice, but it is cool. It's a cool Joe Perry song. And I like the fact that, I mean, I don't have anything off the Whitford St. Holmes. I don't even know where I can buy that, but it's cool to see that. It's cool that they included that. And, and just said, you know what, to me that, yeah, we were having a problem. We weren't together. We were doing different things, but you know, you can listen to that. Yeah. And so to include that and not gloss over it, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's warts and all. It's like, yeah, you can see our big hits. You can see us at our best. You can also see us like, eh, maybe we weren't our best. Maybe we weren't still together, but we were still doing some stuff. And then, you know, they right. put out Riff and Roll and Jailbait from the, the Jimmy Crespo years from the Rock in a Hard Place album. You know, they're not great songs. They're not amazing. You're definitely missing a little something there without Joe Perry. But uh, honestly, uh, still cool and, and glad that they included it on the, on the box yeah, set. Yeah, and I kind of always, uh, getting into this... It, and, and looking at the history of this, I kind of always felt bad for Jimmy Crespo because he was basically just doing a Joe Perry impression. I don't know. And, and that's a kind of a hard thing to do, too, where you're replacing somebody who is not only is iconic, but it's like they're not even dead either. They're just doing something else. So it's like you're just filling a spot. Yeah, um, but and, he, he did get to join the band. He, he's the only mm-hmm. member besides the five original and classic members. He's the only guy who was ever a member of Aerosmith who wasn't those five guys. Because they had to get Rick Dufay in to play live, to, to basically take over Brad Whitford's parts. But he was never a member of the band. He was kind of a, a paid assassin, if you will. And, <laughs> Someone who, who uh, you know, he apparently didn't even play on Rock and Hard Place. Like, that's Crespo playing both lead and rhythm. You know, it's the Toxic Twins, and now there's the Toxic Dude with a couple of other yeah. dudes. You know, it's it's not quite the same. And you know there were tons of shouts, like, you know, where's Joe Perry? Where's Joe <laughs> Perry? Even Rick Dufay in, like, that Aerosmith behind the music thing, he says at the end of 83 or whenever it was that, you know, it was obviously not working out, he's like, you guys got to get back together with Joe Perry again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be like the Rolling Stones without Keith Richards. Like, could they do it? Uh, yeah. I mean, technically, but would you want to see that? Yeah. Th- that person would get just as much crap. It, it's tough. It's tough to join a band like this. And especially at a time when, you know, you get there and you're all excited and, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is falling apart. No one's talking to each other. Two of the two of the guys aren't even here anymore. So I got to play both guitar parts. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it was a great payday. Like you said, he got to be part of the band officially. But I can I can imagine that as soon as Joe was ready to come back again, that that was it was an it was a no brainer to get rid of them. Yeah, but it was also a tough time to be a, a classic rock and roll band. This is 1982, like the time of Duran Duran and Men at Work and keyboards and, you know, crazy new wave hairstyles and, you know, being 20 years old and fresh faced on MTV. And these guys were not fresh faced anymore. Uh, and they weren't going to dress like, you know, new wave, new romantics. That's not them. They're not going to suddenly put in a bunch of synth. That's not going to happen. So they couldn't have bid more out culturally. But it, it did lead to them kind of figuring out, okay, we got to get back with Joe and we got to get cleaned up. Aerosmith kind of famously came back. They all got sober. They all got cleaned up together and came back. And while done with mirrors, didn't really generate, you know, anything. Not much of a video, not much airplay. Then thanks to Run DMC, 
by the time the permanent vacation came around, they were ready to take back their throne. Yeah, and, and did in a huge way and have never let it go since that time. They're uh, obviously a lot older. They don't do as much stuff, but I mean, they're still, they still can command uh, headliner or at least co-headliner gigs all around the United States. And then they do that huge residency in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, look, if you haven't seen Aerosmith, you've missed out and you may not be able to get the greatest Aerosmith in, in the show in the world if you see him here in the next year or so. They're supposed to come to England. They're supposed to come to London. I don't think it's going to happen this year, but they're going to try to do it, I'm sure, next year. But you should really see it. I mean, even if it's just to, to check a box, you're still going to see a heck of a show. Uh, and I've seen him a couple of times. Uh, of course, that one time where I got to go backstage and, and meet Stephen, which I didn't think was going to happen. They say Stephen isn't feeling that well. His voice isn't that great. And like, I wouldn't come out and meet a bunch of people if I'm trying to save myself for a big show. But he did it anyway, soldier through said hello, took pictures, shook our hands. So I give him credit for being the rock superstar that he is. Yeah, that is that is really cool because, I mean, that was a that was a deal where, I mean, you're, it's a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Mm-hmm. For Steven Tyler, that happens every night. Oh, i got to meet these people. But, yeah, for him to say, you know what? These the fans showed up. The only reason I'm here is because of the fans. The fans are here. I will put a smile on my face and do this. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and by the way, I didn't get to meet Joe Perry, but he walked by. He had heels on, and I'm not sure he was five foot six in those heels. Wow. I know. Huh. I know. Cause, okay. Because he looks like the baddest man on the planet, and he is cooler yeah. than anyone you've ever seen in your whole life. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's a dwarf next to us, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. Well, look, and then here's the thing. This this thing f- finishes up in a really strong way, man, with, with three or four songs here that are great. One is Chip Away at the Stone. It was previously unreleased version. It was on a record called Gems. Yes, that kind of red Aerosmith's Greatest Hits package that came out like in 1980 or 81, that sold like 11 million copies. But then Columbia wanted to make some money later in the 80s when they weren't selling records anymore, so they put out something called Gems, which is kind of a Greatest Hits Part 2, and it didn't sell nearly as well. But it had this song, Chip Away at the Stone, on it. And I guess this version was just a little bit different than the one from Gems. And it's killer. We'd obviously never heard it before. They never played it on the radio. And I'm like, this is an amazing song, Chip Away at the Stone. I want to see them play this live. They got to make a video for this. Yeah, yeah, really cool. And and it's cool to, to, to hear something new. I did not have a copy of Gems. And it's just a, yeah, it's just a real, it's got a cool vibe. It's got a cool intro to it. And then it's kind of like, it's, it's weird because it's heavy, but it's also kind of laid back at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of those it, gems that we, you know, off the record, but it, out of this deal that it could have been a single. And yeah, we listened to that thing a million times. A million times. Yeah, we would skip to it because it was so good and it was new. You know, it's, yeah. it's a song. So yeah, I mean, that's that's killer. And then, you know, you get into... Helter Skelter, another Beatles cover, but technically the first one they ever recorded because they recorded it during the Toys in the Attic session. So again, you know, I love that. I want everything from around Toys in the Attic because if you can make that killer album, what else? You got any B-sides? You got any stuff you didn't finish? So Helter Skelter was technically the first Beatles cover they ever recorded, but the third one they ever released with the Come Together being the first, and then they did I'm Down on Permanent Vacation just a few years before 
Pandora's box came out. But again, it's it's heavy, you know, and, and we would listen to this like we weren't huge Beatles fans, but we would listen to this song because it's it's him screaming and it's them jamming and it's hard. Yeah, and I wonder why they didn't do that. Maybe because they were afraid to put out a Beatles cover during the Toys in the Attic days. You know, they were trying to forge their own identity. And again, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to mess with the Beatles, but they, this is a really cool. They make it their own. It's it's a little the the vocals on it are cool. The whole the whole vibe of the thing is cool. They make it their own, and I'm glad that they put it out on this one because probably it, it would never have been. It would have just been lost. Yeah, and from what I've heard from listening to some other rock podcasts is in the 70s, especially in England, the Beatles were old at that point. You know, it's like we, we needed to graduate from the Beatles, and we were. And we had different bands, and we had harder rock, and we had new progressive rock, uh, and you had uh, stuff like Roxy Music, you, had, you know, different things coming out. Plus, you had Zeppelin was huge, and you had American hardcore rock was huge. So the Beatles were kind of old hat, and all four of them were doing solo albums and kind of going in their own direction, kind of trying to bury their past anyway. So um, you know, it, it may have been something they wanted to do. It's like, yeah, we that's not now, but I'm glad they they put it out. It's a killer version. Yeah, yeah, and then. Back in the Saddle is basically how they wrap up the, the record. Killer, heavy-duty song from Rocks. Just a great Aerosmith song. Absolutely love it. And you can't end on a whimper. You got to go out hardcore, and, and they certainly do with this. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's one of those, uh, I, I don't know why that wasn't a bigger song for them also back in that day. I, I think the classic rock radio formats where they only played the big hits. They really didn't get into the, the tracks that were not, you know, big hits. They go to the, the deep cuts, place. right? Yeah. Yeah. They, and this is, I mean, it's really, cause it's not really a deep cut. It's kind of like, it's almost like just under the, the first layer. So again, I'm glad they put it on there. It sounds fantastic. And it really is. It shows you kind of like the sweet spot of Aerosmith, just a really heavy song from them. Yeah, yeah, and it was a single. I mean, I just I guess it wasn't one of their huge ones, you know. And yeah, then, but maybe back then they had so much stuff they were putting out, this almost just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Maybe so. And then there's kind of a ghost track on there. It's not listed on the gem boxes. It's not listed in the book, but it's kind of like a, a bonus track, if you will, and they've kind of renamed it Circle Jerk. But it's really just a jam led by Brad Whitford here, and it, it starts with Stephen going, hey now. Ain't you glad you stayed? You know, here's a little more, you know. Uh, and they, they jam out on that. What I didn't know is that, and of course, I'm really glad we have the original. It kind of had the long box form. It had the three individual jewel cases with each disc made very nice in the big book. Eventually, of course, they had to re-release them. And they made them, instead of the size of maybe two and a half CDs long, it was really just the size of about one CD. And then you had a square booklet instead of the kind of the long booklet like we had. But they also, a few years after this was released, created Pandora's Toys, which was, it had like the greatest hits on it. And then it had Chip Away at the Stone. And I think it had Helter Skelter. And I think they must have listened to the critics who say, you know, this isn't for everyone. But the fact of the matter is this box set went platinum in the USA, which is like a triple platinum album, which is pretty cool. And a coup for Columbia, who probably wasn't selling a ton of the old Aerosmith records. You know, everybody wanted the new stuff. So now, yeah, you, you put this out there. There is a lot of new stuff on it. Um, and you've got the band's full permission. Obviously, they participated, put out the new video for Sweet Emotion and all that, and let their solo stuff where they could on there. So it's just an amazing box set, especially to kids who were kind of deprived of a lot of this stuff just because of when we were born. And it shows 
that the the back catalog of Aerosmith is really really strong uh, because if you if you put this out and it sold you know a couple hundred thousand copies uh, okay but for, to sell into the millions uh, or a million is a testament to the, these are really good tracks this is really solid even if you're not a huge Aerosmith fan if you get a hold of this you will be by the time you're done with this it's it's really cool. The obscure stuff is not super obscure. It, it's very approachable. They did a very good job with this this package. I don't care what anybody says on the on the the critics. Yeah, just I think people just like to throw. They like to point out the instead of instead of just saying, "Hey, this is great." go and buy it it's like well you know if you have like that you get paid to just be a jerk sometimes i think right i mean you can't just be a fanboy and say everything is yeah. wonderful here that's not a critical review you have to find something wrong with it and that's easy for people to do you know i hear critics crying all the time about like a band coming out and playing a classic rock album in order is stupid and it's unoriginal and why do they even do it i'm like well it's because fans love it and that's the way yeah. they've listened to those songs for decades and then to hear the band play them that way that's killer people love that stuff critics don't fans do so go back to greenwich village and in your 500 square foot apartment uh, and hate on everybody who's more talented than you man go ahead well and then my other point too is what record have you put out oh that's right you have it okay right. so you just want to bag on other people that's fine good yeah. for you but, but so yeah, this, this is this, part this of the wave great. man you know i yeah. mean Pump was huge in high school and early college for us. Then this comes out. Then a couple years or a year and a half later, Get a Grip comes out. Uh, and it has huge singles. It has all those Alicia Silverstone videos. They do a, a song for um, the Bruce Willis picture. Was it Armageddon? Yeah. Don't want to miss a thing. That's mm -hmm. enormous. You know, they, they just, they were on a run where they could not lose for a long time. And this was part of it. But this was, you know, more about like, hey, yes, we're doing new, exciting stuff. We're one of the biggest bands in the world again. But check out why. Ch check out what right. got us here. And I'm, I'm really glad to have it. And, and I know that they, it, it, by the time that this came out, they were clean. Everybody was clean. But this was kind of like a, you know, we used to do back in the day. Check this out. Right. Can't do it anymore because we're. It will probably end up dying. But right. this, this was the. This was like. This was kind of like the dirty past that they were bringing back again. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. I love. I mean, I'm not going to tell you I love every single track on this. But when you put it all together, it's really good. It's an amazing package. I had a lot of fun listening to it. You know, and they got. Back to super uber duper stardom, and they got to be in the Wayne's World 2 movie and get on the soundtrack. You know, they get to be on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. It's just a, another way to mint money. You know, that's all there is to it. And by the late 90s, I mean, look, in the 60s, 70s, before... Uh, even into the 80s, a lot of bands got ripped off. They didn't get a big, as big a percentage as they should have of the royalties. But by the time you got to the late 80s and then in the 90s, a band like Aerosmith were protected and they were going to get royalties. And so if you hit it big in that time period, you got majorly rich. Uh, and I'm I'm happy for them. I'm glad they did, and I think it's what's helped them be able to stay together for so long. Yeah, and and really be able to carry on the legacy and and still it just kind of put together what a, what a rock band should really be. It's funny when you see these guys who come out and they're you know they have a little bit of success and then they something they flames out. This is really what it takes to be to be a band to put the work in to write songs and promote the songs. It, yeah, this is really cool, and, I, and I'm glad to your point. I'm glad that they got to a point where they could make a ton of money because they deserve to make a ton of money. 
if you put out a catalog like this, you need, you should be rewarded for that. Yeah, and they may have been ripped off by their managers in the 70s. They say yes, managers say no. They definitely spent some money on stuff like drugs and <laughs> ex-wives and wrecked Ferraris and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm glad they were able to get it back and then some and are still in control to this day. So God bless them. I hope they keep going till they all fall down. Well, that wraps up episode number 24 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, folks. I hope you enjoyed our take on Aerosmith's Pandora's Box. As we said, it's an amazing set. It's an amazing way to get to know the back catalog of the band from the 70s and early 80s. And I hope you take a chance to go out and explore that. And it's good to be back with you. Having a week off due to some technical difficulties wasn't the best thing in the world. We like getting together and talking about the music. We like sharing it with people here on the podcast and on Twitter. And we hope you'll check us out. Check us out at Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. And make sure you check out all past episodes at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. We're preparing for our big 25th show here shortly. And if you've listened to any of the previous ones, you've probably got an idea of a band we talk about quite a bit. A band that we shared a, a love for back in college, despite the fact that it's really only one or two songs it's really kind of grown over the years, and we want to kind of give more exposure to them. Not going to reveal now, but you've probably got a sense of who they are. But as usual, folks, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? You've got to tell us. Tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf. Until next time, folks all around the world, be cool and stay safe. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.